In C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, we find a series of correspondences between screw tape, a senior official among Satan's tempters, and Wormwood, who's a rookie devil who is working to tempt his first human victim. Through these letters, Screwtape mentors the young Wormwood and offers advice for how to navigate the intricacies of the human mind and heart. In one correspondence, Screwtape offers guidance for what to do when the human, who happens to be a Christian, becomes aware of his own lack of spiritual passion and effectiveness. What is a demon to do? when his human victim realizes that his faith and devotion to God is not what it once was. Well, screw tape advises your job is to make him acquiesce in the present low temperature of his spirit and gradually become content with it. Persuading himself that is not so low after all in a week or two, you will be making him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not perhaps a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to the point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing. In other words, when the human prey begins to sense his own spiritual devotion growing cold, Wormwood is to tempt him into contentment with that coldness. The reality is, yes, this man's faith and love for God has grown cold. His faith has shriveled and diminished under the weight of life. But who expects him to have a white hot faith all the time anyway? And those who do have a white hot faith tend to be radicals and could use a good dose of reality. Maybe they need to see what's really going on in the world in order to be realistic in their faith and walk. And in the end, if he is successful, Wormwood might just render his victim ineffective, which does as much good for the kingdom of Satan as if his victim wasn't a Christian at all. According to Screwtape, a Christian who is ineffective in their faith is almost as good for the devilish enemy as someone who has no faith at all. Can you let that set for just a minute? A Christian who is ineffective in their faith. They may be effective in many other things, but a Christian who is ineffective specifically in their faith is as good for the devilish hordes that are at work in this world as someone who has no faith whatsoever. In Matthew 17, 14 through 20, 21, we find the disciples being completely powerless and ineffective to drive a demon out of a young boy. Now this might just seem like a side, interesting, unique story, but it shares a lot about us as disciples in our ineffectiveness. When they ask Jesus why they're ineffective, Jesus tells them that it was because of their lack of faith. And so the implicit lesson we derive from this narrative is that it is that effective disciples, disciples who do great work for the kingdom of God, Disciples who actually go about the business of kingdom mission are those that have a lasting faith in their Lord. And without this lasting faith in Jesus, which we can define as trust and dependence, we will find ourselves riddled with all kinds of spiritual disabilities and dysfunctions in our discipleship. You might be a disciple. You might be a follower of Christ. But without a lasting faith, you are a dysfunctional, defective disciple. Christ knows that we are weak. And he calls us as disciples have a firm faith in him. And in this way, he wants to bring us from being weak followers who have defective faith to being powerfully effective disciples. And so if you want to be an effective disciple of Jesus, Jesus tells us how to in this text. At Matthew 17, Jesus returns from the mountain where we saw last week, he displayed his true glory to Peter, James, and John, and he finds a crowd waiting for him. Now, according to Mark, the crowd was engaged in this intense argument, a lot of shoving and and yelling matches here with Jesus's disciples. A man runs up to Jesus and kneels before him pleading, Lord, have mercy on my son. 
for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples. Now hear the painful words. And they could not heal him. The original text says they were without ability to heal him or they were unable, ineffective to heal him. Now, initially we might think, let's cut the disciples some slack here. I, you know, I've never faced these kinds of demons before. I'm sure casting out demons is no small task. Uh, So who could fault them for not being able to do so? I'm not so sure what my ability to do so would be. The problem with this, however, is that Matthew has already told us that Jesus gave his disciples the power to do this kind of work. Flipping all the way back to Matthew 10, verse 1, we remember how Jesus gave his disciples authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Every disease and every affliction. He gave them the authority over demons even. That said, this work of casting out demons was not all that new to the disciples. They have done this kind of work before. They had been empowered to do this kind of work before. They had been given authority over these kinds of demons before. And so here's the glaring question. If Jesus gave them the authority they needed, then why are they in this instance unable to cast out the demon? There's a terrible inconsistency between what Jesus had empowered them to do and what they were actually able to do. He empowered them to be effective in the work of the kingdom, but yet we find them, at least in this story, completely ineffective and embarrassed about it. For some reason, they were unable to do the very things that Jesus called them to do. And it wasn't that they were trying. It's clear from the dialogue and from what we see in this massive argument going on that the disciples really did give it their best go at trying to drive out this demon. And yet, try as they might, the demon did not even budge. Now, let's just bring the tragic inability of this, this exasperation into our own day. We are left asking if there's anything in our lives that Jesus has given us the authority or the freedom to do that we, for one reason or another, are completely ineffective in doing. Let me just ask some questions here. Uh, Jesus has given us access to God's throne. We know that, right? Hebrews 10 and 9, Hebrews 9 and 10 have written all about that free access. How effective then are we in our commitment to pray? I mean, Jesus has commissioned us, made us authoritative ambassadors, royal priesthood to take the gospel to all the nations of the world. When was the last time you were bold enough to share the gospel with your neighbor? Jesus has defeated death itself, promised us everlasting life, made us more, com- more than conquerors. That's a phrase from scripture, more than conquerors. He has commanded us to have no fear of man. How often then do we find ourselves in fear? The list could go on and on, but the sad reality is, is that if we're honest, there are many, many things in our lives that Jesus has called us and equipped us and given us authority to do that we do not, or even worse, cannot do. And the question that's lingering is why? The fact that we do not or cannot do some of the things that Christ has called us to do is bad enough, but I think there's a far worse problem than that. Some of us are complacent about the fact. Some of us are comfortable in our ineffectiveness. It's like it's understood. It's expected. We're to be ineffective disciples. And well, who's to blame us? We're imperfect. So we'll be ineffective then. I want to give you this heart-probing question, though. Have you or I in any way become comfortable in this ineffectiveness? And why are we comfortable in our ineffectiveness? We could ask the question in other ways. Am I more concerned about being effective at my job? More concerned about maintaining good grades? More concerned about managing my wealth and being committed to other engagements that my ineffectiveness in the basic commands to love God, love others, and make disciples is not so bad? In other words, as long as I bring home the straight A's, it's not a problem that I don't obey God with what I look at on the computer. Or in other words, if I'm doing good at my job and I'm effective in my administration at my job, 
it's not that big of a deal that I'm ineffective in my ability to love others. That's complacency and ineffectiveness. Sometimes practical effectiveness, effectiveness in all the other things of life is seen as more important than spiritual effectiveness. I mean, just think about the way we've talked over the last year. As long as we're practically effective at lots of other things, the way we engage the world in all these other ways, it doesn't matter so much that we're not spiritually effective people. As long as we retain our practical effectiveness, then we are good and noble and great. And all the while, we have this glaring reality that we are not the disciples that we were made to be. When this happens, the fact that I am progressing in my career or expanding my bank account or getting the right invitation letters from the right colleges becomes a more important indicator of the health of my life than does taking time to talk with God daily, reading scripture and living it out. And by becoming complacent about our spiritual ineffectiveness, we do the enemy a great service. Just as the demon of Matthew 17 resided safely in his place, he could just imagine these disciples doing all these things, trying to, trying to wave the wand of practicality, trying to speak the right words that they have spoken before, to stand in the right position. And this demon doesn't even budge, but just comfortably lounges in his place. And yet we see in our own lives that the devil maintains happy footholds in our families in our minds, and in our communities. Most often because of how ineffective we are. My friends, if this does not bother us, we desperately need repentance. If you are okay being effective in every other way, but not effective in your faith, not effective in your walk with God, not effective in the way that you love him and are devoted to him and love others and are devoted to them and are committed to the work of making disciples. You, my friends have a hard heart that needs to be broken by God himself. We must not be complacent in ineffectual discipleship. We were meant to be effective. We were meant to be fruitful Fruit-laden disciples that bear fruit in the vine of Christ. Ideally, every other aspect of our life could go barren and dry. But if our spiritual life with God goes ineffective and fruitless, we are in greater danger than we ever give it credit for. Talk about whistling alarm bells. Here's your sign on the alarm bell. Ineffective discipleship is a drastic, dangerous problem in the church of America today. And it is the thing that will lead thousands to death. That's the danger that we face. That's the snake creeping in our land. It's complacency and comfortability and being ineffective. Now, though Jesus is gracious and gentle, and we'll talk about his graciousness and gentleness near the end, but we have to receive the rebuke just a little bit before we can appreciate the gentleness in his response. He is gracious and gentle, and yet such ineffectiveness grieves his heart to the core. Jesus laments openly. I just want you to imagine hearing this. So the father comes to him, says, I brought my boy for healing, but your disciples were unable to heal him. The next words out of Jesus's mouth shows just how sad he was about this. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long in the real word here to tolerate you, to bear with you. Can you imagine Jesus actually being brought to such a limit? Now you might say, Oh, he was talking about all the other people, not in context here. He's talking about his disciples inability. His rebuke is centered on them. Now it definitely applies to the generation to which they belong, but it applies specifically to them. They are a faithless and twisted generation of which Jesus must tolerate. Ouch. The singe of that rebuke sits heavy on the ineffectual disciples. Faithless is pretty self-explanatory. They are faithless. They don't have faith. 
But the word twisted is an interesting addition. What does he mean by twisted? How would the disciples' failure to cast out the demon prove that they were not only faithless, but that they were twisted? Now the word twisted can mean distorted, dysfunctional, out of shape. In other uses of the New Testament, the word describes something that is misshapen, something that has, was originally straight, and now it's crooked. It's been bent in a way that it wasn't meant to be bent. So put simply, ineffective disciples are misshapen, distorted, twisted, crooked disciples. I hate to be the bearer of bad news about that. Remember, these are Jesus' words to his disciples. Now, I'll give you the good news. I'll give you a glimpse of the good news we're to talk about. He doesn't turn them away. He doesn't turn them away, and he helps them in their unbelief. But just for a moment, we have to see that ineffective disciples are not the disciples that Jesus intends them to be. They're distorted. They're dysfunctional. They're malformed, misshapen. And until we bear that reality, that faithlessness, this, ability, this inability to be ineffective makes us this distorted type, dysfunctional disciple. Until we recognize that, we will never become effective disciples. We have to bear with that fact. We have to understand that ineffective discipleship is quite frankly a sad paradox and a terrible contradiction to what Jesus wants. Jesus wants people who are effective in proclaiming the gospel, effective in doing his commands, effective in not having fear of men, effective in having loving adoration to him. He wants us to be that. And the lament, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Displays his deep pain that's caused by this kind of unbelief. Now, in the same way, I think we have to realize where we're at in our discipleship. I've had lots of conversations this week and people honest asking questions about what we're to do in this day and age and in this life. It seems like sometimes God is silent about what he actually wants us to do. But that's quite the contrary from what 2 Peter 1.3 says. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given to us, has granted us, past tense, God has granted to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you understand what that means? You have everything you need to live a God-honoring life in this day and age. You don't need anything else. You don't need the right political atmosphere. You don't need the right family. You don't need the right job. You don't need the right promotion. You don't need the right 401k. You don't need any of those things because in Christ, through God, God has granted to you all things that you need for life and godliness. Already, it was true in Second Peter's day when Nero was on the throne, and it's true today when we see presidents shifting thrones. You have all things you need for life and godliness but we act as if we're missing something. We wait as if we're waiting for more to come. We stay silent because we think that surely God is going to grant us some additional thing. And yet he's saying all along, I've given you what you need in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So do we have everything we need and yet asking, left acting like we don't have anything we need? What a walking contradiction to who we are as disciples. We have everything we need. And in asking and thinking we don't, we're living a contradictory life. So God forbid us from misrepresenting the real power for life and godliness has been given to us in Jesus. The world should be looking at us as disciples right now and saying they stay the same in good times and bad times, in famine and fruitfulness, because they have all they need at all times. And instead, the world's left looking at disciples like us, saying they act like they're missing a lot. I just pray that we will repent of that kind of ineffectiveness, that we will come to be the true witness to the world that shows that we have everything we need already. They're, they're joining a 2,000-year-old story. We have a resurrected Savior, and... Take away what you will. We have all we need for life and godliness in Christ. 
I'm not sure they hear that message from us. Now, this is an altogether discouraging view of Jesus' disciples, isn't it? These disciples who are kind of defective, ineffective, powerless, embarrassed, beaten by a demon. And with nothing more, this would definitely be a disparaging view of discipleship. It'd be depressing. However, before we despair about the disciples or our ineffectiveness, I think it's serious. We have to give it a serious look. But before we despair about it, let's just stop for a moment and think about the effective Jesus. Jesus' disciples may be utterly ineffective at this point. Jesus is not ineffective. He's never ineffective. He's forever effective. He remains effective and powerful even when his disciples fail. That's the good news that I trust in every day. Though disciples fill our churches that are utterly defective, though I myself am a defective disciple over and over again, Jesus is constantly powerful and effective. When my faith fails, when I fail to do the work that Christ gave me to do, when I am absolutely powerless over my fear, Jesus still reigns as the effective king. He may work through our faithfulness, but he's not dependent on it. Here the disciples were powerless over the demon, but Jesus was still Lord. And at his word, the demon must flee. Disciples tried everything they could, everything they could. Jesus speaks a word, rebukes the demon, and the demon runs. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed when? Instantly, at that very hour. When Jesus spoke, there was no hesitation, no spiritual tug of war. Jesus didn't have to tell him twice. Jesus didn't have to pull out all the tricks and the trades of the game of exorcism. No, he just speaks. And guess what? The battle's over. The demon runs. The boy is healed. And so I find great comfort in this text when it shows that even if we are ineffective, even if we are defective and misshapen and malformed and dysfunctional, Jesus remains effectual. My friends, think about what this means for us. Later, when the disciples scatter in fear, when the Romans and the temple guard come, Jesus remains faithful to die on the cross. While they were still hiding, he rose again. And while you and I are still quivering over the future, he sees perfectly to the end and is bringing it to his purposes. While the rest of us are staying shut up and isolated and not able to sleep at night. While the rest of us are watching the events of the world and shaking, he's effectively extending his hand over all the nations. His scepter is going out. His kingdom is growing. That's what's amazing to me. I've not done one mission trip in the last year. I was supposed to go to Brazil tomorrow. And I'm not going to get to go to Brazil tomorrow because of the new COVID ban. But here's what I can trust in. I may not be able to get there. Jesus' kingdom is still growing in Brazil. It doesn't need me to get there to do it. Now, I'd love to be a part of it. But that's an invitation Jesus extends at his pleasure. My friends, do you realize even if the whole government, the whole political situation in America never gets better, Jesus' kingdom is still growing here in America. Even if China gets to the point where they start killing Christians again, the kingdom of God is still growing in China. Because Jesus is effective. He's an effective king. He cannot be beaten by demons. And he won't be beaten by men. So we have this dual message in Matthew. We're kind of left with this balanced view. Number one, Disciples without faith are defective in their calling. Ouch. Good news, Jesus is still king, even with defective disciples. So I don't, I don't want to preach a message that says, shape up people, Jesus needs you. Because that's not the case. What I am saying is, shape up people because Jesus is enough. Be effective because he is. 
be successful in building kingdom work, not your political game, not your career, not your education. Be successful in building the kingdom because he is the successful king. And we sit in that dual message. Jesus would eventually die on the cross in Matthew's gospel, which eventually displays more of the disciples' weaknesses. But it's after the resurrection, his disciples are given the strength to carry his name to the nations, the courage to face suffering, and even the faithfulness to die. My friends, Jesus knows your inadequacies and your ineffectiveness better than you do. And he invites you to trust in his strength, not yours, to do that which is beyond your capacity. Now, the disciples were obviously frustrated. They try and try and try and try and try. And they are sweating. You're right. You can see these guys with the nasty armpit sweat from working out so hard in the Judean wilderness, trying to get this demon out and they can't do it. They're like, they're, they've had a workout and Jesus merely says, get out. And the demon goes, no effort much at all. Well, that's pretty frustrating, right? They said the right words. They did the right dances. They stood in the right way. They put their hand. They even crossed the man. They did all these things, I'm sure. They went through all the rituals. Maybe they even brought the guy to a church. We brought him to church. Why then were we ineffective? Why then could we not throw out the demon? Jesus diagnoses their ineffectiveness as being because of your little faith. In other words, their inability to do what he had commissioned them to do was sourced in their own disbelief. They were, as the word connotes, impoverished in faith. You can be rich in many things, but to be in a, in, impoverished in faith means that you can do little. You can do a lot with money. You can do nothing without faith. They were impoverished in faith, but Jesus doesn't want to leave them there. In Mark's version of the story, Jesus says it's because such demons are driven out only through prayer. It's the same connotation here. It's not that there's a special type of prayer that they needed to pray. It's that they didn't pray. Through uh, taking, If we take both Matthew and Mark's account at face value, we see that the problem was an absolute failure to depend on God. In Matthew's gospel, they don't have faith. In Mark's gospel, they don't pray. Both the same problem. They don't depend on God. They do all the right work. They try all the right things, but it's altogether ineffective because they have a poor faith and a prayerless ministry. In the words of one commentator, they are treating the authority given to them like a gift of magic. A bestowed power that works ex opera operato. In other words, in and of itself, just by saying the right words, just by doing the right things, that surely they'll be effective by doing that. In Mark, Jesus tells them that this case requires prayer, not a form or an approved rite, but an entire life bathed in, pr bathed in prayer and in concomitant faith. In Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that what they need is not giant faith. Tiny faith will do. But true faith, faith that is out of a deep personal trust that expects God to work. Sometimes, my friends, we do all the right things. We go to church, we try to live a good moral life, we speak the things that we think we should speak, we support the right things, and yet we are still ineffective in the kingdom work God has given us. Why? In the disciples' case, it was because they were doing all the right things without a complete dependence upon God. Such a life may look righteous. They knew, like I said, how to do all these things, but it was utterly void of real fruitfulness. I think we're left with this lesson, and you'll have to sit with it. We simply cannot be effective and fruitful disciples without a sure and steady faith in our Savior. It's up to you to convince yourself otherwise, if you dis disagree with that statement. I mean, isn't that the message of the Bible? You simply cannot do these things without faith. Without God, there's nothing you can do. 
without doing it in God's way and God's will, according to God's plan, there's nothing you can do without absolute dependence on God. Doesn't matter how loud you shout. Doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how many degrees you get. It doesn't matter how many promotions you win. The reality is you will be utterly ineffective in doing the things that Christ has given you to do without an absolute dependence on him to do it. You'll be like the Israelites in the book of Numbers. They went to attack the right land. They fought the right enemies. They picked up the right swords. They shouted the right name, Yehovah. And yet they were completely independent of God. And they got beaten. In Texan, they got whooped. And God tells them that they did so because they went without him. My friends, I wonder how many of us are going without our king. Only absolute dependence and trust in our king, only by absolute dependence and trust, can we be effective to do the task that he has given us. Faith is the crucial element in effective discipleship. It is the effective element. Jesus goes on to say, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. First off, what does Jesus mean by faith? Faith, as Jesus uses it, means absolute dependence and trust in him. We know that, right? That faith means not just to have a head knowledge that Jesus is king, not just to assent that he is important, but to actually trust in him as king. A practical trust at that. Can I say that? Not just to have the spiritual high-mindedness that says, yeah, 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 I know it'll all work out in the end, but for now I got to lose my mind. Yeah, yeah, I know it'll all work out in the end, but for now I I can forget. I have freedom to forget that Jesus is king. No, an absolute dependence. It is a thought process and a day-to-day lifestyle that acknowledges our neediness for Christ in all things. It's a faith that looks to him to preserve his people. He will safeguard his people. It's a faith that looks to him to build his church, a faith that looks to him to build his kingdom, a faith that looks to him to conquer the enemies, a faith that looks to him to save sinners and to bring us safely home. And without such humble neediness, you and I cannot do what Christ has called us to do. Faith makes our work as disciples effective. Maybe sounding redundant here, but it's a message that deserves to be repeated. To be effective, you must have faith. To prove his point on how effective faith is, Jesus says that one only need faith like the grain of a mustard seed. I don't know if you've seen a mustard seed. It's tiny, little bitty seed. He's not demanding flawless faith. He's not demanding this perfect, secure, solid faith, right? He's asking for a tiny bit of faith. Trust in me just a little bit. That's what he's saying here. Even with a weak, small trust in Jesus, you'll be able to do the things that he wants you to do. You'll be able to fulfill his purposes. Mustard seed faith can render mountain moving results. Mustard seed faith. That's a, and that's the paradigm that he's setting up here is trust in Jesus, move mountains. Trust in Jesus a little bit and watch your fear run. Trust in Jesus a little bit and watch your ability to cross the street and share the gospel come. We get so wrapped up in what we can't do. And that's exactly where the devil wants to keep you. Because he doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to think about what you could do in Christ. He wants you to focus on, on what you can't do. But trust in Jesus. And when you trust in Jesus, you're able to be effective for the kingdom. My friends, my greatest fear is that people in our church, that I myself will be effective in many, many things. And that when the kingdom comes, we'll realize just how ineffective we were for that. When 401ks disappear, when we no longer have presidents, when colleges are no longer around, when bank accounts aren't needed, When graveyards are no longer here. Well, I have to stand in that desperate 
realization that I worked for all the wrong things effectively? That's the fear. We can be effective in many things. And yes, we should be effective in all those kinds of things. I want to, just in case any words get put in my mouth later, you should be effective in all of those things. Be good at money. Do good at your job. But if you're effective at all those and not effective here, you're wasting your time. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your breath. Don't waste your time. It's often been misinterpreted what it means. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's been twisted by a number of false teachers. Have a mustard-like faith, a mustard seed-like faith. And that long awaited promotion will be within reach. The cancer will go away. A cherry red sports car will be waiting in your driveway. The problem with this kind of misuse of the text is that essentially promises that God will let you build your tower of Babel. As long as you say you're doing it in faith. God doesn't promise he's going to help you build your tower of Babel. God promises he will help you build his kingdom. And so nothing will be impossible for you. Doesn't mean nothing will be impossible for you. It means nothing will be impossible for you like facing the devil himself. Standing up to Satan, the wicked tyrant of all the world. And to send him running. Can you imagine that kind of effectiveness? I mean, the tyrant behind tyrants, the tyrant who led Hitler, the tyrant who led Mussolini, the tyrant who leads every single dictator on earth, goes running from the one who has faith, the one who has dependence on the king. That seems impossible, yet even that is not impossible for the one who trusts in Jesus. Nothing will be impossible for you. Faith makes our kingdom-building commission possible. How else do we expect to disciple all nations? How else do we plant churches in the hardest to reach places? How else do we, re, re, do we love people that are hard to love? And by what other means can we preach the gospel of reconciliation without fear? How else can you endure suffering and even death in the hopes of a resurrection? If we are to be effective disciples who are effective in the work of Jesus, then we must have an effective faith that keeps us dependent and centered on him. Now, spoken pretty tough today. I've got a dual purpose as a pastor. On one side, I'm wielding the sledgehammer, trying to help us as Western Christians realize that we're not effective as we could be. Now, the fear that I have with that is I can wield the sledgehammer so hard that it shatters and breaks. The problem is, is once that rock falls away, we need a support now because we now recognize we have weak faith, right? We now recognize that we are defective. So having heard all these things, you may be feeling rather exasperated. You may be doing all the right things ritualistically and yet nothing comes from it. It feels like a whole lot of sowing and tilling, a lot of exertion and no fruit. Now, let's just suppose you're doing the right kind of work, though I wouldn't assume that. You should probably go back and evaluate, are you even doing the right kind of work? But let's just suppose that you are doing the right kind of work. Are you doing the right kind of work in the wrong way? Are you doing the right kind of work in your strength? Could it be that you are attempting kingdom work without a true dependence on your king? Simply saying, oh, yeah, 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 I trust in Jesus. It's it's not going to work. It's not going to do. You got to actually bring it home between you and him. Do you actually trust in Jesus? We have to be willing to honestly evaluate how our hearts drift into self-reliance, self-made solutions, self-made strategies and plans. You can be sure that when you go looking at that evaluation, that you will find symptoms of self-reliance. What are some of the symptoms? Well, pride. When somebody's self-reliant, they have a reason to boast in and of themselves. When somebody's self-reliant, they have a reason to fear because it's up to them. They have a reason to get angry and they begin to resent others. They're joyless, altogether joyless, just zapped out of their life. Because again, it's up to them. But the work of Christ done in faith 
tends to be accompanied by some of these more godly attributes like joy, peace, patience, kindness. I mean, you see those kind of things that come from a godly work. And so if you're, if you see some of these symptoms in your life, you've noticed, yes, I've been, I've become incredibly irritable and angry and frustrated and fearful and impassioned about all the things that necessarily aren't kingdom building then could it be the case that you're attempting to do things in an ineffectual way? Maybe you're even preaching the right message, but in a way that relies completely on you. So what then should you do if you find yourself ineffective due to missing faith? What, maybe you are someone here that's like, yeah, I look at my life and I have not been effective in building the kingdom. What should you do? I have some hope here. If anything, we can, we can look at Christ. Jesus doesn't send away, send away defective disciples, does he? He doesn't disinherit all these disciples right then and there. He teaches them. He loves them. He dies for them. And then he comes back to them when he rises from the grave. And then he promises that he will never leave them. So there is hope in that. So let's just see what we can do. The first thing to do, if you find yourself an ineffective disciple, if you find yourself doing a whole lot of things that aren't building the kingdom, the first thing to do is is to acknowledge that even in your faithlessness, Jesus is faithful. Can we just say that? We're terrible people sometimes, but we have a wonderful Savior. We are defective, deformed, misshapen, ugly people sometimes. But we have a beautiful Savior. Though our faithlessness is a serious defect, I mean, it is an eyesore in the kingdom of God. No defect is beyond Christ's power to help. He can help those with seizures. He can help those of you that can't sleep at night. He can cast out demons and he can drive the demons away from you. John Newton once wrote, if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins may be many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak. And he doesn't say, but he is powerful. John Newton says, but he is power. Jesus is effective. Jesus is faithful. Sometimes just admitting you are weak and in need of Jesus' strength is the greatest application of faith. Why do we find it so hard to admit that sometimes? We tend to hide our defectiveness, our deficiencies, our dysfunctionality. And in doing so, we undermine just how functional and amazing and effective our Savior is. It is far better to look the defect right in the face and say, yes, it's a defect. And then to look to Christ to heal it. than it is to pretend it's not there. The second thing to do is to ask for help. It's not recorded in Matthew's gospel, but in Mark's version of the account, the boy's father petitions Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus responds in a somewhat corrective manner. If you can He just said that to Jesus. If you can do anything, and Jesus responds back, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And what happens when the father realizes that he has a defective faith? All he says is one sentence. I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus did. Sometimes we need to ask for help in order to increase our faith. This may seem strange, doesn't it? Jesus is the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful king of the universe. Why doesn't he just zap us with more faith the moment he sees it dropping? Right? You would expect that of a good king to actually be watching your faith. The moment he sees you shriveling, that he would just zap you with more faith and help you in it. Here's the thing, though. I have a feeling he likes to be asked. Jesus knows your faith diminishes. But I have a feeling he likes you to take the time to be humble. 
to recognize that you do have a defective and diminishing faith and that it doesn't magically grow. It's not like you eat a bowl of Lucky Charms and suddenly you're more faithful. He likes to be asked. He likes for you to have the humility to stop and say, I have an unbelieving heart. Christian needs to say that sometimes. You realize that. I have an unbelieving heart. I have a heart that is poor in faith. And to recognize that, and then in the midst of recognizing that, and humbly recognizing that, to then drag your tired, fearful self to his feet. Ask him to help. And then watch as your gentle and loving Savior extends his hand and actually does help you. He knows you're diminishing in faith, whether you admit it or not. But watch what happens the moment you acknowledge it and you ask for help. My friends, can I just admit to you as a pastor? I may get in trouble for this. 2021 was a year that I gave up a lot this year. Talk about feeling ineffective. There's sometimes it feels like no matter how many sermons you preach, no matter how much you're there for the people of God, no matter how much you work, no no matter how many hours you give, sometimes it doesn't feel like there's much fruit there. Just in a moment of transparency, do you realize pastors get tempted like you do in their jobs to quit? I can't tell you how many times this year the only thing I could bring myself to pray in the morning time help. I can't pastor these people. I can't pastor myself. I tell them every Sunday to have no fear and I wake up every Monday fearful. I tell them every Sunday to trust in Jesus and I wake up every Monday not wanting him that much. I tell them to share the gospel. And then I read the headlines on Tuesday that I might actually someday go to jail for doing so. My friends, sometimes the best thing you can do is to realize you can't stand and just cry out for help at that moment. There is no way you can be, in a, you can be effective if you do not sometimes find yourself falling And crying out for help. If you have never had that moment. You may have been spiritually paralyzed for years. And not even recognized it. There's just some times. We know that things are beyond ourselves. And we just need help. And the prideful thing is what keeps us the, the, the pride inside of us not wanting to admit that we're defective not wanting to admit that we're weak not willing to admit that we're not where we should be that keeps us from coming to Jesus it's almost like we're embarrassed my friends he already knows and he's already promised draw near to God and he will what draw near to you the prodigal son comes and the father doesn't say let's wait till he gets to the front gate father runs because it's the fact that the son is running back to the father. That is a clear admittance. I need help. My friends, you are ineffective on your own. I am ineffective on my own. I will waste my years. If I do not every single day, every moment of the day, fall on knees and simply pray, help. Drag yourself to the feet of a willing savior who helps in time of need. Now, here's the third thing to do. We've talked about it. When you're faithless, know that Christ is faithful. Second, Ask for help. And finally, live in the gospel. The most effective thing you can do. 
The thing that will make us most defective in life is duping ourselves into, into believing that anything we do is effective. That anything we do is effective. The gospel perpetually teaches us that it's not your work that counts. It's his work. It's not all the things that you can get done that matters. It's what he's done. It's his resurrection that effectively changed history. It's his kingdom that will last beyond all the kingdoms of the world. It's him, not you. Sure, you struggle. Sure, you strive. Sure, you suffer. But all that's the outworkings of the finished work of Christ. We pretend as if there's much, much, much more to do and left undone. And Jesus hasn't done it. And we forget that it was from the cross that Jesus said, it is finished. How restful is it to live and work in the finished work of Christ? To do our work, not because he needs us to, but because we have the sincere joy of working in fields that have already been plowed and planted. You didn't plow it. You didn't plant it. You didn't tend it, but he invites you to work in it. Because it's his field, his work, and it is finished. To be truly effective, we must live in, bask in glory, and depend upon the and celebrate the finished work of Jesus, our King. So when you do those things, when you stop and acknowledge that he's faithful, even when you're faithless, when you acknowledge you need help, and when you acknowledge that you must live in the gospel, that's how to be effective Christians. Friends, I know I'm well over time. Sometimes a burden to say things that I know needs to be said. And there's not enough time. But this is how we become effective disciples. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your life and your love for us. That you gave your son to die for us, to finish the work that we could not finish on our own. Father God, I pray that you will make us effective by faith. Father, I imagine there's a lot of people here that are beaten up. Father, you want them to see what ineffective this looks like so that they can become effective in Christ. You want them to exasperate of themselves so that they can depend on and celebrate Jesus. We must come to an end of ourselves if we're to be what Jesus called us to be. I pray for freedom in this church. I pray for hearts to be set free from the chains of their own self-made labor. I pray that the slavery of fear will end. I pray that the taskmaster of pride, self-ambition, independence will die and that you will let us live as effective disciples under Christ our King. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.